Friends, I am fresh off a four-wheeler from Lions Park. If you hadn't heard, that's why, that's why my hair is a little more coiffed than normal. Uh, if you hadn't heard, our Westside campus uh, meets at Dogwood Elementary normally, and uh, the school needed a couple weeks before school started to get the floors waxed and all that good stuff. So we had church in a park, and I'm happy to report we had about 180 folks out there worshiping outside. Yeah, very cool. So they gave out sunglasses to everybody, and if I didn't need my glasses, I thought about preaching in those. But uh, So just wanted you to know we got lots of good stuff happening this morning. So glad you are with us. If we haven't met yet, my name is Adam, and it's my fourth Sunday as uh, the pastor here, uh, senior pastor at First United Methodist Kearney. You know, one of the things when, when folks are making conversation and I'm meeting people, uh, you know, they'll say, so where are you from originally? And that's an interesting question for me to ask. Uh, or for me to answer, lived all over the, the east side of the state growing up. My dad is a Methodist pastor, but uh, you know, before I moved to Kansas City in 2015, I spent 10 years in St. Louis serving a church there. And it was at that church where on my way home from work one day, I was passing by an elementary school that was right down the road and saw like an SUV with its flashers on. And there was kind of a, a mom-ish person and, and a couple kids there. And I thought, well, what's going on? And I'm not a car person. I don't know a lot about cars, but I thought, well, maybe I could at least help change a tire or something. So, you know, as, as scary and intimidating as I look, I really wanted to try and make a friendly first impression. So I, I slow down to a, a creepy crawl and I'm pulling right up to him. I roll down my window and I'm kind of craning out my head. I'm smiling to let them know I'm not creepy. And, and then I hear, as I'm pulling up to the mom and her two kids, I, I hear a very disturbing sound and it, it, it was a unique sound and it was, it, it was all, it could only have been the sound of me crushing the turtle that they had pulled over to save. It was the worst, the worst. And so I realized what, what's happened and I have never been looked at like, like this woman looked at me or been addressed like this woman addressed me with like, the fire of a thousand suns of anger burning within her. She was like, how could you not see the turtle? And I don't want to be known as the pastor who likes running over animals for fun, right? So I'm like, no, no, no. I was, I was trying to help the humans. It was the humans I was trying to help. I didn't see him. You got to believe me. And so I end up kind of talking her off the ledge. And it's ironic because just a few weeks ago, some of y'all know this, I, uh, we got our son Aaron a tortoise and so when I was buying the tortoise, I was very nervous that I'd somehow been like blacklisted somewhere. Uh, so I am a fan of wildlife. I love flora and fauna, love tortoise, turtles, tur all breeds. But man, it was just a bad deal. So what do you say in a situation like that? I finally kind of talked her off the cliff and, and, and she was like, well, I appreciate you trying to stop to help. And she was like, at least the turtle died instantly. I was like, well, yeah. And so what is there to say? So I just kind of waved to the kids and was like, well, kids, sorry I murdered the turtle and just, just kept on driving. You know, what is there to do? Uh, I think that's how life feels like sometimes, right? Sometimes you're the car, sometimes you're the turtle. And that little guy didn't stand a chance. In our scripture today, Jesus tells a story about a king who doesn't stand a chance. And this is, this is kind of, you won't find these verses like cross-stitched at grandma's house somewhere. This is, this is not often a, a scripture we lift up, but it's, it's one of my favorites. Uh, so Jesus tells a story about two kings, and we're going to get into that in a minute. Uh, but the, this, this king we're going to read about, he doesn't, 
He doesn't have a chance. His defeat is imminent. Even if he puts up a fight, there's no way he can win. And I wonder if you ever feel that way sometimes. Like you're the turtle in the equation and a car's coming for you. You know, how, how am I ever gonna be able to retire? Or as a student, you might be thinking, how am I gonna survive middle school? How can I possibly pay for higher education? How am I ever gonna get through this crisis? Sometimes it just feels like we're fighting a losing battle. Sometimes we're so consumed with what's going on day to day that, that we don't have the luxury of time of, of thinking on kind of a larger level. But the story of the two kings, it's gonna interrupt our lives. The story is jarring. It's kind of scary. It involves kings and armies, war. These are probably not three of the things you usually associate with Jesus, would be my guess. And the story takes us kind of beyond our day-to-day worries into a much bigger, scarier question. And that's, is God out to get us? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. God, God, why me? Why is this happening? Is the point of Jesus' story that we're going to read, surrender or be crushed? Let's find out. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 14, verses 31 through 33. I was talking to uh, one of our folks at the earlier service, and he's been a, a United Methodist pastor for like over 50 years. His name's Raymond. And I said, well, Raymond, I'm only preaching on three verses today. He goes, well, sounds like you'll be doing a lot of preaching. <laughs> so short verses, but a lot to unpack. Here we go. Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? So the king with 10,000 troops, the, the lesser king, the one with the lesser army, he's thrown into a defensive war. It's coming for him. His enemy is advancing on him and he must act. It's an urgent decision. His people, his authority, his kingdom are all in the balance. And he has to make a calculated decision. Is this a fight I can win? Now maybe you have, but I've never had to make any decisions where people's lives hung in the balance. But it's often in life that a situation presents itself that we have no other response to other than to react. Sometimes stuff just happens and then we have to decide what we're gonna do next. Several years ago, I think it was February, the end of February one year, we celebrated paying off my wife's car. And then like two weeks later, it broke down. Oh, I don't know if that's ever happened to any of you, but you kind of sit down, right? You look, okay, what's it gonna cost to repair? I was talking to a, a friend of mine who's a mechanic before service, trying to tell him, hey, I'm actually talking about cars. I have no idea what I'm talking about. And I don't remember what the repair was. It was gonna be thousands of dollars. So we had to sit down and decide, well, $3,200 to repair the Subaru, which was part of the problem. $3,200 to repair the Subaru is certainly less than like $15,000 to get a new car. But is it wise to just keep investing money into this car that's gonna keep breaking? So we had a decision to make, right? 
We had to kind of sit down and do the math. We had to kind of perform that mental calculation over whether it's worth it or not. Life presents us with circumstances, and my guess is that a lot of us have had to make a lot harder decisions other than just what to do with the car. So what do we do when a scenario is thrust upon us? What's at stake? Getting back to our story, the decision the king faced surely wasn't one that he took lightly. This is verse 32. So he's got an army of 20,000 coming at him, and he's only got 10,000. So what's he going to do? If he is not able to oppose this king to win the war, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. So the king decides that he's going to take submission over destruction. And he would rather see his soldiers survive than be turned into slaves or something worse. He, he, he decides that the people he's responsible for, he wants to see them become subjects rather than slaves to this other king. Because of his leadership, uh, he, he's going to ask for terms of peace. So he's preemptively calling for a truce. He gives up his authority and his autonomy. He's no longer gonna be the king. His kingdom is no longer his own. So if, if this story were a movie, if the, if the story of the two kings were a movie, I don't think we would like it, right? We, we like to tell, we like to watch movies or hear stories about people that stay and fight. It's a bit dated at this point, but the movie 300, I don't know if you remember that one, it tells the story of the Battle of Thermopylae, where 300 Spartans stood against Xerxes and the Persian army of, of thousands and thousands. I don't know if we have any native Texans with us. I'm a big fan of the state of Texas, just so you know. Anybody know what the most visited tourist site in Texas is? The Alamo. You guys are sharp. The Alamo, where for almost two weeks, a few hundred Texans stood against the Mexican army of 1,500. So like our king in the story, both the Spartans and the Texans faced uh, immeasurable odds. They were stacked against them. But instead of, of surrendering, they chose to stay and fight. Now that makes for a great movie, but they also met their doom. By surrendering, the king gives up his authority and he saves his life. Now this is a lot to think about in just a few verses, I think. And then Jesus finishes this intense little story with these words in verse 33. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. So what does all this mean? Like, I don't know any kings. I don't, I don't have delegations. What, 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 are we, what are we supposed to make of this? Now initially it seems like God is the king whose force is unstoppable and that we should surrender while we still have the chance. Resistance is futile. The lesser king with an army of 10,000 was presented with the situation and he, make, he makes a calculated decision. He surrenders. Now, some would call this cowardly. But what if this lesser king's surrender was an act of faith? When he sues for peace, when he sends off a delegation, when he waves the white flag, he's entrusting that this greater king isn't going to, A, wipe out the people he sends as like a little sneak preview of what's to come, and B, that he'll honor the truce. Asking for terms of peace is an act of faith. Because when he does so, he's revealing that, hey, I don't think I can win this anyway. 
By surrendering, by laying down his authority and his autonomy, the lesser king was putting his faith in the greater king. So I believe the question for us is, will you surrender to a greater king than you? In terms of the parable, we're each the lesser king. God has given us free will. God has given us the ability to choose how we run our own little kingdoms. It may not feel that way all the time, but we each have our own little kingdom to run. It's, it's our life. We get to decide what our priorities are, where we put our time, where we, where we put our energy, what we do with our money. Now, some of us are better than others kind of on our own. And the ominous part of this parable is, is the idea that like it or not, there is another king advancing. He's on his way. And like it or not, as in the story, we each will answer to a much greater king. But friends, the good news is that the king doesn't come to destroy us. He comes to rescue us. I want to read a verse that we normally read around Christmas time and don't really dust off any other time of the year. But there was a prophecy spoken by uh, the prophet Isaiah centuries before Jesus was born. And he describes just what kind of king is on the way. This is from Isaiah chapter 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. We don't need that stuff anymore. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So Jesus came as a king, not to establish like a temporary political kingdom in the traditional sense, but to establish a kingdom that would last for eternity. When he returns, his victory is inevitable. Like a king whose army outnumbers his opponents two to one. Now, is this scary? Maybe a little bit. But the goodness of this greater king is shown in the terms of peace. And they're simple. The terms of peace that the greater king has for us is faith. The lesser king makes a calculated decision, but then he proceeds with faith. He knows he can't win, so he accepts the terms of peace and surrenders. I believe God doesn't want to scare us into submission. What God offers us is the chance for reconciliation. To go from enemies that oppose God to disciples who follow God. This is from the book of Romans chapter 5. Since we have now been justified by his blood, that's the blood of Jesus, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, the book of Romans contains some of the, the most thick theology in all of the Bible. It's a lot to wrap your mind around. 
In verse nine, we read that we have been justified by the blood of Christ. And I just wanna be honest, for a lot of my adult life, I didn't really know what that meant. You know, this, this, is, a, this is a verse that's fairly well known, and I'd kinda, oh yeah, justified, yes. What, what does it mean to be justified, and, and why does it necessarily involve the blood of Christ? For us to understand the Christian doctrine of justification, we need to start by understanding what we mean by that word. So if someone is justified, it means we hold them blameless for their decision. Like if on the way to church today, if I got a flat tire and didn't run over any turtles, that wasn't the problem. If on the way to church I got a flat tire and somehow was late to preach, I don't think you all would blame me for that. You would understand. You would consider me being late justified by my car trouble. Or, or like if, if I got word that one of my kids was sick and, and like, or, or something urgent happened and they were on their way to the emergency room, if I just stopped what I was doing to go be with my kids, I, I think, I'm pretty sure, I, I'm guessing that you would consider me justified in that decision, right? You wouldn't blame me for it. To be justified in the sight of God means that God doesn't hold, that God holds us blameless for our sins. And it's even better than the examples that I gave because God views us as justified in spite of what we've done. Because of what God did for us through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. We have been justified. We are looked at as blameless by God because Christ paid the price for sin. And so to me, the beautiful part of this idea that Jesus is our greater king is that not only do we not stand a chance, but he offers the terms of peace to us to surrender ourselves to him, to give our lives over to him, which as it turns out is what he did for us first. Jesus has provided the terms of peace for us to be reconciled to God. All we have to do is surrender. But it's a total surrender. The last words of Jesus in this parable, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Friends, there's no going halfway with Jesus. There's no 90-day return policy. There's, 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 there's no lifetime warranty, no protection plan. You can't go halfway. There's no hedging. You can't say, well, Jesus was a great moral teacher, but, but not the son of God. That doesn't work because that's not how he described himself. We can't say, you know, uh, Jesus is one among many equal expressions of God. Well, I would disagree because that's not how Jesus described himself. Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. That means we can't say, okay, Jesus, you can have my faith and some time on Sundays, but Monday through Saturdays, those are mine. Doesn't work. As Christians, we can't say, Jesus, you can have my faith, but I'll keep my bank account and my politics for me. Ooh, is the, is the honeymoon over? Students, we, we can't come to impact on Wednesday and, and not leave here and expect for our mission field to be our math class on Thursday. 
Friends, we can't sort of live one life here at church and another life on social media. Doesn't work. We surrender all of our life to Christ. Each of us have the opportunity to give Christ our life in total surrender. Again, as it turns out, that's what Jesus did for us first. I know what it's like when I try and live my life my own way. And so the question for each of us today is will you surrender to a greater king than you? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the chance to be together, to, to hear from your word, to sing praises to you, and to be reminded of your goodness. That while we could not possibly in, stand any chance in opposition to you, you made a way for us to be reconciled to you while we were still your enemies. We thank you for the precious gift of your son and his life, death, and resurrection. So God, today, help us to be reminded that, that we're called to surrender our lives to you totally. And that that's not just a decision we make once, but it's with every decision we make, we choose whether to honor you with that or to be in charge of our own kingdom. God, lots of us have made a decision of faith a long time ago. Help us to renew that decision each and every day by the way we surrender all of our life to you. Impress upon us in these moments the things you are calling us to let go of, to give back over to you. Those relationships where we've been holding a grudge. The way we've tried to control different outcomes in our life. We surrender all of those to you. God, help us love you and love our neighbor in each and every way we can as we daily make that choice to surrender to you, our greater king. And everybody said, amen.